I'm Naomi Klein, and I am at Navarro Media right now, having just done a wonderful in-depth interview. And this is why I love Navarro Media. And I listen regularly and watch to find out what the hell is going on in the UK. It is so critical to have independent media that we can trust, that goes deep on the issues, and also lets people stay up on the day-to-day twists and turns. It's going to be especially important for your next election. So I'm incredibly grateful that Navarra Media exists, and it exists because people support it. So make sure to support Navarra Media. We need left institutions, and that means that we have to support them when they're doing such great work as Navarra Media is. Thanks. Today's guest is very much an original thinker. He's independently minded. Of course, everyone likes to think they're independently minded, but over the course of his career, he's pissed off just about everyone. He first shot to the forefront of the national conversation about 25 years ago, writing a trenchant critique of globalization and being entirely skeptical, pessimistic even, about the possibility of a successful war of occupation in either Afghanistan or Iraq. On both counts, he was proven right. Now he's turned his attention to the West. He says that the pieties of recent decades, cultural, social, and economic, are over, that the status quo can't carry on, that we're very much at a crossroads. So what next? He thinks the future will, in many ways, resemble the past. Perhaps things like religion, ultranationalism, maybe even feudalism might be on their way back. Big questions and different answers to what you'd hear elsewhere. But that's what we like here on Downstream. John Gray, thanks for joining us. Very pleased to be here, Aaron. Very pleased to be talking to you today. We're very happy to have you. Uh, I just wanted to start by saying I first read you around 2001, <laughs> um, Full Storm, mm. and thereafter Straw Dogs, but Full Storm I think was the first time I'd, I'd read you. I was 17. Mm. For me, that put you on the map. Obviously, you existed well before then, um, and we'll talk about that as well. What was the response to that book? Because it was a very provocative th- mm. thesis at the time, namely that globalization, um, ever larger swathes of the planet falling under the guise of liberal market capitalism isn't necessarily going to happen, and maybe it has some big downsides. And some people didn't quite agree with your conclusions, did they? <laughs> well, it was considered off the wall because it was published at a time um, when globalization as a mood and an idea and a profitable um, project was at its height. So if I'd been calculating the time to do it, I wouldn't have done it then. And um, the reviews it got were without exception with one exception, I think a friend took pity on me halfway through the process, but with, were all extremely negative. I mean, normally my books polarize people in a Marmite-like way. This didn't. Everyone hated it. And I thought at the time that, and I think I still think this, it simply went against the mood. Um, the Cold War had ended. It was supposed to have ended in victory. Although even 10 years before I published, um, False Dawn. I'd written in a conservative magazine um, a piece on Fukuyama's essay before he wrote the book. The essay came out in the fall of um, 1989, before the wall came down, um, but very close to the time when it came down. I'd written then that 
um, the coming collapse of communism, which I thought was going to happen, would be the resumption of history on very traditional lines. It would not be the end of history at all. I mean, I think I later joked it was uh, rather like one of Beckett's um, stories, where he, which contains the line, the end again. Uh, it uh, wasn't the end of anything. It was the resumption of history because the Cold War was a rather um, anomalous period in which global politics, not completely because there were the non-aligned movements and so on and so forth, but was organized in a, a binary, binary opposition between two Enlightenment ideologies. And that was very liberalism and communism. They both spring from the, the Enlightenment in, as a broad family of ideas. And liberalism appeared to have won, but I never thought that it had won because it was liberal. Um, I knew some of the people in Poland who were um, and, and other East European countries who were working against um, uh, the Soviet um, control of their countries. And uh, some were intellectuals, but many were religious intellectuals. Some were Catholics. Many were nationalists. I mean, what, what brought down communism was not intellectual dissent, and it wasn't economic inefficiency. It was solidarity, the Roman Catholic Church, and Baltic nationalism. Now, they were, so even before it happened, my interpretation of the weakness, the fragility, and the ultimate collapse of the Soviet project um, was completely different from that of Western liberals. My interpretation of it was that what was happening it was that these regimes were becoming illegitimate, even in Russia, ultimately. But before that, in, this, in communist Europe and in the Baltic states, uh, it were coming more and more illegitimate and hollow, even among their servants. Even the elites were less and less willing to use force to rule. And that this was not because liberalism was spreading as a universal ideology. It was because in um, um, nationalist and religious and other traditions, particular traditions and particular forms of life and thinking in these different countries, were reasserting themselves. So I never expected that it would turn into a universal liberal hegemony, not for a single moment. Um, so when I, 10 years later, published um, False Storm, I wasn't surprised either. I, uh, I was surprised by the intensity and the consistency and the near, near uniformity of the negative reaction, but then I reasoned. Um, um, that's because we're at the height of this project now. It'll take a while. And um, it took a long time, actually. It took almost till now that the uh, globalizing project would fragment, partly for the, it's partly fragmenting because of things I didn't anticipate, um, um, like the pandemic. Although I do say in Straw Dog, someone reminded me, I'd forgotten that. If you have long-term plans, don't ask you financial advisor, um, ask an epidemiologist. <laughs> because even then, 2001 or 2002 when it appeared, um, I'd been reading about um, the way uh, plagues uh, had uh, had an uh, impact on various junctures in history. So I hope it's, it's a rather digressive answer to your question, but I think these thoughts then were so antagonistic to the ruling worldview at the time and the ruling mood at the time, which was one of boosterism. Remember, one thing I've learned is this, is that if you have a uh, a view which um, um, everyone accepts um, uh, as being the truth and it promises good things and is also profitable, 
which so if you if you talk to banks in those days, which I where I did a bit, and you say to them, as I did, China will not become a liberal state. Will not happen. Why will it not happen? Because first of all, this is in the nineties. They looked at what happened in the Soviet Union. They're not going to repeat it. Secondly, um, it's a Leninist state, and the uh, uh, judicial system and the courts are all subject to the party. It's not going to change. Thirdly, every enterprise of any significance, and generally big enterprise, has party cadres implanted in it, which will have to be consulted at every point. They're not going to permit a revolution, and a liberal state could only come about in China by a revolution. So it's not going to happen. No one believed me. First of all, because um, it meant that the ruling worldview was false, which while worldviews last, which is sometimes not very long, they're very contagious. Groupthink, hurt. Heard, heard thinking comes in. And secondly, it would have made them doubtful about the profits they were going to make. Mm. So when you have a conjunction of groupthink with uh, the prospect of serious money being made, it's irresistible. So it goes on for as long as um, the profits seem to come in or as long as the underlying geopolitical tensions don't become too obvious, which they now have. Mm. So now we're almost into a position where deglobalization is, has become a cliché. We're almost in a position in, in which everybody accepts that globalization at all, which it is in many important respects, but not all. Mm. Does it, that answer your question? It answers my question very well. And I think as, I, for, for, for younger listeners and viewers, mm. people younger than, say, 25, they will find it almost impossible to believe quite how um, distinctive and um, sincerely held the ideology mm. you just said was. If you said to somebody... No, I don't think China will actually get um, more liberal. They would say, well, of course it will have rising GDP, there'll be falling birth rates. The bourgeoisie will emerge. Pardon? A bourgeoisie. Yeah, and, and, and the bourgeoisie, they would say, they could do with a bit of Marxism on this, has always been liberal. It hasn't always been liberal. The yeah. bourgeoisie in Europe in the mid-20th century backed fascism, not liberalism. Yeah. Or if you, it's a complete you, historical myth. Well, yeah, or you look at you know the rise of anarchism at the sort of turn of the 20th 20, 20, 20th century, late 19th century, the guy that killed McKinley, these were basically small business owners. They were radicalized members of the petty bourgeois. Yes, they were. They were attracted to anarchism. Yes. The idea that they would fall in behind some sort of stolid, progressive bourgeois ideology. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. The funniest point for me was in about 1989, 1990, when I would say, what's going to happen is that history will go on as usual. And people said, you're an apocalyptic pessimist. So if you say things are going to go on as normal, as they've always done, you're an apocalyptic pessimist. If you say they're going to change completely from what they've ever been, you're a realist. Mm. Now, when I was in Washington in the 89-90, one of the things that happened then is that some of the big um, foundations that were backing foreign policy programs, these the ones I knew were mostly on the right, pulled most or all of their money out. So what's this, like the Atlantic Council, people like that? I can't, I can't remember now. But I that think heritage, of, all of those yeah. people, yeah, were getting the money. They either cut it down or cut it off because they said, it's not needed, we've won. And we haven't just won for five years or 10 years or even a generation, we've won forever. So the idea that, I mean, this was what Fukuyama calls capital letter history. Capital letter history. Uh, Hegelian history, mm. Koyevian history. These were, that, that's to say, an, a certain idea, a certain conception of what it means to be recognized, to be seen as a human being, had become um, universal, always in the process of becoming universal um, or near universal. Um, 
And nothing could stop that. But it could be accelerated so that what I didn't anticipate until it began to be clear around about 2001, 2002, I suppose, is that the people who believed this would want to accelerate this inevitable process by regime change. That's to say, you could say the whole world is uh, changing on these lines. There might be a few holdouts, there might be a few Taliban, there might be a few nationalists here and there, but basically the whole world is accepting this idea, this big capital letter. Um, but that's the way it's going to be. But if it's somewhat slower than we imagined, which by then, more than 10 years after the fall of the wall, it was become, we can accelerate it by not just one, but a succession of wars of, of, of choice. Now, by the way, I don't say they were the only reasons or the only people who were pushing for these wars. There were military bureaucrats in the Pentagon, some of them. There were supposedly hard uh, men and women thinkers and so on, and tough guys of various kinds who, for their own reasons, wanted, wanted the war. But I don't think it would have happened. I was there a lot in those days. I don't think it would have happened without the neoconservatives. Mm. They created the, the background. There were other people who mm. supported. It was a coalition of supporters of the war with different views. What, what changed, though, with all this? Because are you a fan of science fiction? Yes. Yeah. So you look at people like the Foundation series, or you look at Dune, published in you know the fifties in the United States. Now a movie. No, yeah, it's two movies. Yeah, great. Also, just a great book, and it has such a firm grasp on on what you know the long span of history. Yes. You know how, how empires and enmity and all these primal things you're talking about, nations, religion. Not only that, but Dune is much more interesting to me than Asimov or. Um Star Wars because it's neo feudal. Yeah, well, precisely, but it's in the distant, distant, distant. Yeah, future. but it's the, it's 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 the feudal future. Yeah. And, and one of the things about the history, which makes it a very modern book, right? Yes. Well, a very twentieth century or late twenty, very twenty first century or late twentieth century book, because one of the things about one of the features of the worldview, and this was common, I think, to Marxism as well as liberalism, but certainly of that worldview, was the idea of irreversible phases in history. If you'd gone through feudalism and into liberal capitalism, you could never go back. Mm. You can go back. Not exactly to feudalism, because that was, of course, um, an agrarian economy based on land, but you can go back to a set of social relations and political structures, which are very like feudalism. They're not quite feudalism. As you know, in my book, I discuss the arguments of some people in America who say, we've got feudalism. It's not quite feudalism. In some ways, it's worse mm. <laughs> than feudalism, because in Feudalism, um, tremendous corruption, wars of religion, so on and so forth, power of the church, censoring ideas and so on. There are all those kind of features, but you couldn't actually easily, not many people until the early modern period when feudalism began to fray, not large numbers of people didn't fall out of the system altogether into free fall, which has happened in America. That's to say you've got large numbers of people, hundreds of thousands or even millions who are basically, apart from um, some bits of public welfare and charity uh, and crime, have no position in society at all. That didn't happen. Uh, but in other respects, it, um, you can have, um, and according to some American critics of, uh, their, of their own type of society, you do have neo-feudal relations. So I think what's interesting about science fiction are the science fiction writers who um, did not accept, 
an Asimov-like or a Star Wars-like view that, that these liberal ideas would spread not only all over the world, but all over the galaxy, all over, yeah, the, all over the They thought that previous social forms involving things like, I mean, loyalty is a big thing in Dune, is it not? Hierarchy. People are told what they can do and not do. Um, religion or obligation, yeah. obligation of, and shamanism of various kinds is there. Divination is there. Roman practice. They've, they've reinvented even pre-feudal. It has Roman elements as well in which, um, divination and other, um, practices were, were important. So I, th- I think they, they are, I think that, I think science fiction, I mean, I knew J.G. Ballard, who at one point in his life, um, was a science fiction writer who wrote other genres as well, of course. But I think science fiction of the best sort is um, is a good lens to mm. view the present. The great thing with um, the Foundation series is, and like you say, there's the t- almost two competing visions of how history works, Foundation and June, um, is that it offers an amazing snapshot at how people thought, you know, this thing called, the, we now call it in, in reflection, the Great Acceleration, mm permanently rising populations, ever greater. Go on forever. Yeah. You know, because he talks about the, you know, the, 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 the population of this ginormous empire. So that would be too big for the planet. In, you know, in the tens of billions and billions of billions of people, when in reality what we know is that in the 21st century, the, the, this, this planet's population will probably plateau about 10 billion and then start to fall. Yes. But like you say, they were making inferences from the early 1800s. It'll go say, from 10, 10 billion to 100. Yeah, and this will go on forever, where of course it did. But there were two reasons they were wrong. I mean, the big expansion of population uh, in human history was over two or 300 years, not two or 3,000 years, let, let alone 30,000 years. It happened as a, as a, as a byproduct, I think, of um, hydrocarbons, yeah. of industrialization. So it was quite, it's quite brief, yeah. quite brief, 300 years. Um, well, you know, my grandmother, sorry to interrupt, my grandmother, she, she died at 98. Mm. She was born in a world where there were 2 billion people. Yeah. She died this year. She died in a world where there were 8 billion people. Yeah. So that is incredible, right? The planet's population quadruples yes. in the span of a person's life. Yes. Wow. So their idea was that that two or 300 years was a template for universal history forever after. Now, one, back to nature, that things like that never happen in nature. You never have... Um, in the natural order of things, it all dep- it all turns on the view that on the belief which liberals have but never admit to. Oh, I never believe that nonsense. Liberals generally nowadays don't admit to ever having any of the beliefs they really do have, or that they've that they've had in the past. It turns on the idea, which not only liberals but some Marxists as well have, that um, the human animal can do a very can can, can humanize nature or transcend nature. They might say, well, this might have been true in the days of Malthus. It might have been true in the days of the Roman Empire. Plagues might have been important in, in, in ancient Rome and so on. But we're in a completely different uh, perspective. What they didn't bring out was a feature I'd argued in, in, in rather rudimentary form, perhaps, in um, False Storm, which is that the more integrated a global economy and a global civilization was, the more fragile it would be. I mean, until... Uh, um, I suppose the start of the 20th century when you had a world flu epidemic, uh, plagues weren't global because most of the human beings in the world lived in economies that were separate from each other. They didn't touch each other very much. And it's no accident that when you had big plagues in the ancient world, they were in Rome, which was an early uh, experiment, if you like, in globalization uh, uh, and closely interconnected by trade. So they didn't take on board that the, um, either in history, in earlier periods of history, like the Roman period, 
or in the natural, in 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 the nat- the systems of nature, natural systems, um, growth of this exponential kind is never full stop, never permanent. It always comes to some kind of stop. I want to pick up on something you said because this is really fascinating, and it was one of the, there's two or three insights in the book which just really hit me. One was this idea that, and we've said it many times on this show, you know, we're we're reverting to a, a genre of capitalism, a kind of political economy, which in some ways resembles feudalism. Mm. Um, gains in productivity only go to the top one percent. Increasingly, profits and revenues are generated through um, asset ownership, uh, rentierism, etc., etc., etc. This is not new. People Arbitrage, been, not production. Yeah, exactly. Value capture, not creation. Blah blah blah. People have been saying this for like fifteen years. What you say is that actually, in some ways, the system we have now is worse than feudalism. Mm. Can you explain why? Because I think obviously most people would disagree with that. Well, uh, in one reason is the one I've already given you, but it's connected. And the one reason is that large parts of the formerly productive population in Western countries, particularly um, United States, have no productive role in the society. And since their identities, their communities, but also their medical care and their incomes uh, depend on um, their role in the economy, they have nothing, basically. And one of the things they don't have is what people had in the feudal period. Of course, if you're a Marxist or a certain kind of liberal rationalist, you say that this is just an illusion that pacified them. Even though they knew the society around them was thoroughly corrupt, they still actually, I think, believed, I mean, the evidence is they believed that um, in the rationale of the society, which was that it was an afterlife in which injustices would be corrected. It might also be hierarchical afterlife, but it would be much better. By the way, the reason we know they believed this is that there were also radical and revolutionary millenarian movements in the Middle Ages, which said, we do believe this, but we don't accept the society. So the millionarians in the proto-communists, if you like, uh, in the um, late medieval, early modern period, were not atheists ever. They were eschatological Christians. That's to say they believed that, they believed these legitimating roles. Now, the difference now is that I think, and this is new, but something that young people can, I think, understand. No one really expects now, certainly no one's confident, certainly no one thinks it's inevitable, but actually hardly anyone really expects the rests of their lives or their children's, if they have children or their children's children's lives, to be better than theirs. That's a fundamental change. It's a fundamental, a really profound change because the, ide- the melioristic ideology of increasing um, material well-being interlocked with the progressive ideology that each stage of emancipation in society built on the previous one. So women get the vote, they're partially emancipated, still very unequal, but that can be remedied once that's happened. Prisoners can be can get basic rights, ethnic groups, the struggle against colonialism. It was a kind of, it was a stadial theory. It was a theory of stages. And the assumption was that each uh, stage that had been reached in the past would remain fixed, would remain there. Now, one of the features of the 20th century is that, that was disproved in Europe because Europe in the um, interwar period saw tremendous um, conflicts of ideologies and ethnicities and so forth. And when the Nazis then came, they swept away not only 
I mean, they, they achieved, it isn't that they went from some kind of uh, uh, level of um, um, staircase three back to staircase two, they went to minus 20, sweeping away enormous amounts of what had been achieved before, sweeping away even the good bits mm. of the bourgeois civilization uh, were swept away. But this is happening now as a common experience and not in the context of catastrophic wars necessarily. The common experience now is that there'll be many young people who will say to you, I'll never be able to afford to own a house. I can't even afford to rent in London. If, if one room in London is now over £1,000 a month, one room, I just can't do it. And, that, and they don't see a, a, a point in the future where that will be different. So it's most acute, though. I mean, if you have some kind of a, a job, if you have some kind of education, if you, have some, if you live in a country where there are, however, semi-collapsed, still some welfare institutions and NHS and with all of its problems and others, then people can sink into a mood of um, resigned hedonism, which I think is a common response. But if, you're, but if, you're in, if you have nothing at all, if you live in a semi-collapsed of a uh, state of nature in um, a post-industrial uh, part of the United States where there is epidemic drug use, then you'll have what is now in fact happening, which is huge levels of early death, falling longevity. Um, I think longevity in um, Mississippi is roughly that of Bangladesh. Just building on what you said there, there's a great line in the book which you know basically says... Religion historically was the opium of the masses, and now they're just being offered opium, fentanyl, oxycontin. But before they were offered fentanyl, they were offered the future. Precisely. So this is the typology I sort of just want to quickly offer. So like you say, feudalism, you have uh, um, eschatological afterlife. Um, modernity, you have, like you say, the future. We're all temporarily embarrassed millionaires, the sort of American ideology. And now, like you say, we don't even have that. There is no future. So you have high inequality, potentially under all of these scenarios, personal income deprivation, suffering. But like you say, there is two big ameliatives in those first two categories, feudalism, pre-21st you know, century capitalism, or let's say mid-20th century capitalism. And then now we have something quite distinct. And you also see this, I think, in, in the built environment. The built environment across much of the UK and the United States is just collapsing it is collapsing yes. i think it, literally in many yeah it's a visible expression yes, of giving I up agree with on both faith and the future we have buildings now built for 30 40 years which look like crap don't really serve any purpose and nobody thinks they'll be there you know three or four decades and from now and not only that but they're becoming either toxic or um fragile yeah with the cladding and the rack like, concrete might say, let's think of a period though in our history one which i'm old enough to remember even in which this was not the case. There was a period after the Second World War, in not just in Britain, but in other Western countries, European countries in America, when the state assumed certain responsibilities for moderating inequality, mitigating suffering, and reinforcing social cohesion. They weren't, in other words, old labor weren't uh, um, anti-capitalists, but they wanted to restrain capitalism. And they thought it was necessary to do so. Why did they think that? Because they, many of them had lived through the 1930s. Mm. They were from a generation that had not only fought in the Second World War, so they knew what could happen when a social system had melted down. But even some of them were old enough to remember the tremendous meltdown of capitalism 
which had triggered Nazism, which had triggered various fa- fascist movements, or at least energized them. And so then in the after the Second World War, for maybe up to a generation, 30 years perhaps, mid-70s, there was a, a system in many European countries which was called social democracy and I think had many achievements to its name. It, and so that was the kind of... Um, it depended on an environment uh, which um, began t- to change even as early as the late 70s, I would say, um, uh, but the in, uh, an environment in which there were relatively closed economies, in which there wasn't much globalization. It only be, really began to get going uh, in China and elsewhere. The market reforms began to get going in late 70s. With the early, but for 30 years, there was a more restrained form of capitalism based on what? Based on the perception, the experience, not just the theory, that capitalist economies can go badly wrong. When they go badly wrong, they can be really badly wrong, and that can have terrible political repercussions, including fascism. That was common sense, and it was well-founded common sense among the old labor people. That was then, um, that insight was then lost in the 80s, uh, and after the 80s, well, let me give you again, maybe an anecdote. Not, I came from a northeastern working class background. And in the first part of my life in the 50s, Britain was still poor after the Second World War. It was still a poor country. And yet, NHS doctors came out if you had a cold, a flu. I remember them coming to my house. Mm. Unthinkable now, even before the pandemic that anyone would come out for anything short of a major emergency. And yet, well, we are richer even now. You might be getting poorer now, actually, um, but we have been richer. What changed? What changed was the global environment of capitalism and the dominant beliefs about the state and about what the state should do and not do. And what and this has produced in Britain a tremendous um, confusion. So part of the confusion was that um, when Brexit became an issue, most of the Brexiters in the run-up to 2016 thought that Brexit was a, uh, a window to further globalization, to an even smaller state. Most of the people who voted for it did not share that view. No, of course not. Yeah, but that's created, I mean, that's one of the reasons why the Brexit project has um, been aborted and botched. Let's return to Brexit in a second, but yeah. I just want to stick on this. So you say that... Um, there was a period. There was a period, and, and these people weren't anti-capitalist. So what I would say to that is, and that's obviously correct, is that those people today would be classified as anti-capitalist. So if you say, and this is, you know, there's a great talk by Eric X. Lee about the Chinese Communist Party, and he's it's a TED talk, and he said elsewhere that we still believe in markets in China. We still, you know, there's still money-making money, ergo capital. The big difference is that... Those who make political decisions don't view the interests of capital as superseding the national interest or the public good. That's what he says. So the the, the interests of capital aren't the sort of political sum on bond. Although let's never forget that the power of workers to resist capital in China is even less than it is. Absolutely, in no, absolutely, much but, less. Yeah, but it's a really interesting. Much less. It's a really interesting. There are no trade unions for us. No, well. absolutely. I'm not. I'm not sort of. Yeah, no, I know. China. Yeah, but it's a really interesting insight, which is to say that okay, well, China has markets. China is deeply yeah. embedded in global sort of production, um, commodity chains, yada yada yada. What is different? Because clearly there are differences in terms of the sort of political decisions. Well, the being difference made. I say in the book is, um, and this is maybe because uh, I want to stick with this. Yeah, because 
I think what he's saying about the public good, about certain values taking priority over the interests of capital, I think that broadly applied to European social democracies from 45 to the late 1970s. And so I think- And even earlier, because in that article you wrote about boots. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But if if you say, but if you said that now- The capitalists themselves accepted limitations yeah. on what they could do. But if, you, if you're a politician now and you say that, you say there should be limits on what capital can do, where it can go, what it can buy, that is viewed by... As anti-capitalist. Yes. Yes. So Ernest Bevan would be an anti-capitalist for the lobbyists and news people yeah. of 2023, <laughs> even though he obviously never was. You know? Yeah, yeah. And Peter Shaw would be anti-capitalist and Hugh Gateskill would be anti-capitalist. Quite. Well, this is one of the absurdities of uh, presentism. That one of the features of uh, intellectual and public life now is that what went before, even 20 years before, soon it'll be five years, maybe it'll be five minutes, <laughs> it's just vanished, it's just erased. So if you say, well, well, you know, you can go to a library, there are still libraries, you can look up on the internet, you can buy books on, on Amazon, they're still there, and A-books and so on, written by these people, um, uh, where they criticize many aspects of capitalism, uh, that would and that would now uh, lead them to be viewed as almost revolutionaries, anti-capitalists. But were then normal, moderate opinion. Mm. So we get all this utter nonsense about centrism. Mm. Centrism means um, a kind of um, uh, uh, um, a collation of of policies none of which are popular, many of which are radically rejected by most of the population. But they're attenuated and triangulated to the point in which it's thought that they can be put over on the population. That's what centrism is. Most of the centrist ideas, most of the centrist are extremely unpopular, rejected by large parts of the population. Most of the British population, for example, um, favors, as I do, but I think it's not going to happen, it's not possible, favors uh, nationalization, re- taking back into some form of public ownership, most of the utilities. Um, um, obviously water, large parts of energy, maybe parts of the banks, railways and so on. That would be a very good move. And if you, if, if you check even conservative voters, yeah. well over a half, mm. sometimes 67%, yeah, very good idea, why don't we do it? It's an extremist idea now. Well, then you've got to, uh, it's represented as an extremist idea. Now, there are reasons why it might not be possible, including some I've talked about in some of my recent, it might not be possible because Britain is very highly exposed to international capital flows. So if these policies were done in a way which the markets perceived to be um, um, dangerous to um, the financial system, the markets would veto it. So it might be that it is impossible. But there's nothing extreme about them. They were the common bread and butter of British politics from, um, at least from the Second World War, before that, of course, as well, but from the, from the, 45, the government of 1945 up to, even I would say, periods of Thatcherism, because as I mentioned in my book, um, she had these rather charming uh, inconsistencies. We can never privatize the post office because the queen's head is on this types. Yeah. Now that was actually a deep thing. She didn't grasp the way in which liberated markets dissolve the culture around them, including the national culture. Uh, she strongly opposed, I think BA, as British Airways, changed the logo on the back of the plane and took the flag off. She strongly opposed it. Couldn't understand that BA was now a global capitalist. Entity. She should have read some marks about how capital, about how markets can dissolve, you know, previous 
traditions. You know, it's all in the Communist Manifesto. Obviously. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that was where Marx was right. It was prophetic. Um, but she, she wouldn't have done that. But it, in, in her favor, she also, um, and this is in um, False Dawn, um, she responded to uh, an account of Fukuyama's ideas, saying, end of history, beginning of nonsense. Didn't believe any of that rubbish. She saw the kind of bourgeois society, basically a, a, an idealized model of the 1950s, actually, or even the 30s. She saw that as something that required political struggle. She thought it could be revived. The paradox was, and this is what she was sort of skewered on, this paradox, and the deepest paradoxes are the ones that the people involved in them never, never understand, um, was that what she did in the economy destroyed all possibility and even then all memory of the society she wanted to rebuild. That's the, the deep paradox of Thatcherism, which I began to understand myself maybe from about 87 to 88 and onwards. And that was when I became, adopted a slightly Bukharanist rule of, role of making cryptic um, criticisms of all, of all this, very unwelcome criticisms. I didn't end up in a, in a, in a, in a camp or something or a, or, or a cell like Bukharan, but they were very, very unwelcome. And when she, when, when, uh, when she was still in power, although she never embraced um, Fukuyama's theory, her own view of the world and that of many Thatcherites had become a form of universal triumphalism, a kind of upside-down Marxism. And what I'd objected to in Marxism, you might not take this view, but um, is what I object to in all radical progressive ideologies, which is the contempt they display for the casualties of progress. You say, well, but 4 million, 10 million Russian peasants died. Uh, well, they were peasants. People, I mean, what cultivated? Did they have degrees? Were they graduates? Uh, I suppose the, the, the left response would be, well, precisely all of this happens with regards to the formation of markets in the whole world, right? Or, you know, the Irish famine, the, the Irish famine, for instance, is the exact same phenomenon. So I suppose a, a reasonable, I hope, left response would be, that's absolutely correct. The point is that market ideologues don't understand they did the exact same thing. No, they don't. And uh, But that, I mean, um, when there had been moderate forms of capitalism, that was understandable. But when a more radical form of capitalism was reinvented or invented a new form even, actually, because it was more global than it ever been before. Even in the colonial period, it was more global than that. Um, there was this, um, to me, very repellent, um, morally repellent, even aesthetically repellent, um, view that if there are groups that can't fit into this well, yeah. let them go. Yeah. And so they would go by living in broken down cities, they gradually, some would leave, some would die, some would have short lives. Uh, um, and this is on a bigger scale happening in America, where, of course, we've, as we've discussed earlier in our conversation today, Aaron, there are these really large numbers of deaths from, um, uh, um, from drugs. I mean, <clears throat> of course, that's, I mean, you can look at it another way and you could say, you know, drugs are the hyper-capitalist commodity. It's interesting, but if you, uh, many of the big series in, um, television and series in, uh, in the last few years coming out of America have been um, about ordinary people, middle-class people and other people entering the drug economy, mm. uh, breaking bad. But lots of them have been like that. Ozark. Ozark. Yeah, great TV. Great TV. But it also tells you something, which is that the only way for many people 
to either live a normal life, which in Breaking Bad men funding cancer care, or to accumulate substantial capital, is the drug economy. I mean, large parts of America are now such that the, the living parts of the economy are the drug economy and its various extensions, because, of course, it then funds legitimate businesses and gain, gains hold of them. So, so that's a very interesting feature, I think, of, um, and that connects with our earlier discussion of feudalism. I mean, I think however much one criticizes the feudal lords and aristocrats, which I would myself in many ways, they weren't, they weren't as cruel or as anarchical as Mexican or Colombian um, or Russian um, um, cartels. I mean, they're extraordinarily cruel. They're extraordinarily violent and kill enormous numbers of people. And yet uh, there are large parts of Latin America and other countries that have fallen into that um, that condition. And that connects, by the way, with another feature of my book, which is very much resisted and might even be resisted by, by Hobbes if he could be brought back, which is that... <laughs> One of the one of the one of the ways in which I represent Hobbes as a as a as a, as a, a liberal rationalist and a liberal optimist is that he he did think that if his that his ideas were, which they are in some respects universal, but he did think that they could be applied to get um, uh, societies that would fall into what he called a state of nature. That's warring groups warring over position and power and resources. They could get out of that by uh, inventing a sovereign by a sort of contract. I don't think history supports that. I think there are lots of periods in history which show that um, states of nature in society. State of nature is not something in Hobbes before society is formed. It's something, it's a condition that societies can fall into at any time. They last for ages, centuries even. It's very hard to get out of a situation like that. And that mm. was something also, by the way, which the liberals of the, of the, of the Iraq war and of the um, Libyan regime change uh, um, didn't understand, which is that it's comparatively easy to destroy a state. It's extremely difficult to recreate it. Mm. In, Lib in Libya, for example, I mean, one of the features of, the, of, the, of current life now is that the, um, Libya is not just, doesn't just have two governments, which in practice means it hasn't got any government. But it's also one of the really principal gateways of uh, illegal migration into Europe. So that problem was, uh, or that reality, that flow was created by or magnified by um, um, the regime change that uh, um, um, Cameron and, um, uh, uh, and the French imposed on, on Libya. I mean, when people say you've got to stamp down on the, uh, on the gangs and you've got to, um, you've got to, uh, repress the people traffickers. Well, might, that might be possible to do in, in Europe where there are still relatively strong states. You can't do it in Libya because there is, in fact, there is no state. So it just can't be done yeah, this is in there. So that, and that's connected. On how many occasions have you watched reports about Lampedusa or other migration flows, big migration flows? How many times when they mention that some of them have come from Libya, how often has it, was, has it been mentioned that? the Libyan state was destroyed by Western intervention. Mm. I would say practically never. And that's not deliberate, by the way. It's not a conspiracy, which we're not going to mention this. Mm. Most of people never, first of all, they never heard they're too young or they're too, they don't know anything about it. They don't care. The, the business, the rapid business of generating news doesn't permit that kind of reflection. 
It just isn't in the range of thoughts and experiences and histories that people know. I mean, this to me seems like the, the, a core small C conservative insight as somebody who's a socialist that agrees with like this insight, which is like you say, it's very, very easy comparatively to destroy a state, state infrastructure. It's very hard to build it. Uh, and, and, and Libya is really the great example here because I tweeted this, I think, earlier on the week with regards to the, these floods, you know, tens of thousands of people dying, open-air slave markets, Yes, um, like you say. This Absolutely. Is astonishing stuff. And I say, clearly Gaddafi was better. Clearly. Human Development Index, I think in 2010, they were like 55th in the world, number one in Africa. Now they're 115th. You know, it's just Human Development Index is literally like... And some of this is measurable. A lot of it yeah, is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So clearly, clearly, you you know, you'd want to... Um, You'd probably want to go back in time if you could, if you were Libyan. And then but some people said, well, yeah, but he was going to get Benghazi. So Benghazi is now run, run by basically a form of the Taliban. I don't think they recognise quite what they've unleashed. Well, there's a reason for that, though. It's part of the liberal, a-liberal worldview, which is that nothing can be worse than tyranny. But lots of things are worse than tyranny. I mean, some tyrannies, di tyrannies differ. There can be tyrannies that are limited in their goals. Mm. Um to enriching a few people. And though that might be terrible, and it, might, it can be less humanly costly than tyrannies which want to change the whole of society according to some model, which could be um, uh, communist or fascist. Mm. So there can be different kinds of tyrannies. But it simply isn't true that on any reasonable ethical or empirical uh, assessment that tyrannies are always the worst thing. Where do you think it ends? Because... You know, we, we, we've seen so many of these mistakes, like I say, with Libya, Afghanistan. After it was said by nearly everybody, this will never happen again. Yeah. It but did happen. But people still defend it. That's the thing. That's what I find really, really interesting. Well, so they say that it's because they say tyranny is the worst thing. They still believe that. And they don't see the necessity. Well, there's maybe an even deeper reason, which wouldn't fit in easily to most aspects of left-wing thought, which is that much of political life, as a much of ethical life, is a choice in which involves options and choices in which whatever is done involves irreparable loss or even wrong, even injustice. That's a very sort of, in other words, if you think that, then it's not just a choice between evils, because you could say, well, choice between evils, we'll, we'll maximize the good and minimize the evil, which is a kind of utilitarian way of thinking. So in a sense, the evils don't matter. If you get the, if you get the maximum out of it, the evils don't matter. But I don't think that's true to human experience. Uh, human experience is of choosing between um, options, recurring options, re options that don't go away. They keep recurring in different forms in which whatever is done involves what those who have acted or failed to act recognize to be irreparable losses. I'll tell you a, um, an example from, from that in the Second World War, uh, which was um, told me by uh, Isaiah Berlin, which was that a, a government officer, a government official appeared, or a minister, even I can't remember now, appeared before his typing pool and said, we're going to sack every single person in the typing pool, which would be a great injustice to all but one of you, because not only will you be sacked, you'll never get a job again. It'll be a black mark over your security because you're sacked for security reasons. One of you is leaking, but we don't know who, who that is and we haven't got time to find out. And in the meantime, brave men and women are being dropped into parts of the enemy territory and dying terrible deaths. Terrible deaths. So um, we're sacking a lot of you and he sacked them all. Now, the interesting thing about that is um, 
to me is that he recognized that what he was doing involved injustice and wrong, not just a utilitarian calculation. He didn't turn it into utilities and say it'll be more utile, it'll be more pleasure and less pain in the world. It was a deep injustice to those who suffered it. Their lives were effectively, their productive lives were ruined permanently and irreparably ruined. Even after the war, they'd never get a job in this again. For the sake of a goal, winning the war, and also uh, protecting these people who are going out there to be tortured to death and so on and, and betrayed. Now, a basic question for ethics and political theory is, will there ever be a point in human in the human world where this, this is to be true? Now, if you're a certain kind of progressive, a certain kind of Marxist, and a certain kind, there will be, there won't be in my view. There won't be. It'll always be like this. Why it'll be like this? Because that's what human beings are like. We have conflicting needs, conflicting impulses, conflicting. Even if we had material abundance, it, it would appear in these, these kind of so, But that's something which many people are extremely resistant. It's an idea which to them is deep, deeply pessimistic. Although you can turn around and you can say that in times of tragic choices, they are also are periods and contexts where people can display extraordinary nobility. See, I, I they can take on the they can take on the irreparable loss to themselves. Even I, I agree with what you just said there, and I, I, I say this as somebody who wrote a book about moving to a society beyond capitalism mm. and of, of of a kind of abundance we're not really familiar with. I agree with what you've just said, and I would say in response that human frailties. Um, and all the kinds of discontent you just talked about will never go away. And in fact, some people have already lived under conditions of comparative post-scarcity and abundance. We call them the aristocracy. And if you read the sort of novels like Laclos and these kinds of people... How they lived. Yeah, how they lived. They're often very sad, very tragic. So the, the, there's big parts of their lives which don't, you know, the, of, of human experience which won't disappear. And competitive. Yeah, well, yeah, quite. But then I suppose the, quest the question is, what's a bigger problem? People are getting upset about love affairs uh, or, you know, um, the, the, pa the paradox of choice or not being able to feed themselves or dying from diphtheria. But I, I'm making an extreme comparison there. But I think, I think you're absolutely right about certain aspects of these things never... But never... for many people, it's a hard choice to... Um, it's a hard truth, I would say. I would say it's a fact. It's a fact of ethical life it's, um, that, that there are these recurring situations. And... Um, even in it, you see, the, the paradox emerges for revolutionaries in that in an attempt to create a world in which these uh, tragic choices um, don't need to be made or, they're, or they only occur in personal life with love affairs and, and uh, friendships and so on, uh, the revolutionaries find themselves with precisely having to make the decisions and the choices that they want to abolish. So one of the things that's not understood, as you know, a lot of my book is about Russia, and I don't deal with this part, part in Russia. One of the reasons that um, post-Tsarist Russia turned into a, uh, um, a Bolshevik state, and one of the reasons that was highly repressive, was partly Western intervention and partly the struggle with the whites. But one of the things that happens in all revolutionary situations is that the revolutionaries struggle among themselves and the ones that are the least ruthless, like the Russian anarchists, are the ones that are eliminated, exterminated either physically or politically marginalized. So that the paradox of revolutionary action, and of all political action in my view, even you know um, conventional political action, is that if it's motivated by these grandiose ideas of getting to a world in which tragic choices don't exist, it will find itself making these choices 
so let's, in order to achieve the world which in, in which they don't exist. So perpetuating the world in which it does. And I think that's, I think that's, you see, this is a, maybe a, an irreconcilable, I mean, left-wing thinkers and conservative thinkers agree on more than real left-wing thinkers and real conservative thinkers. I don't mean neoliberals on either mm. side. Agree on more that than, than either uh, usually realize. But there's a fundamental difference between the view that I take and and uh, many people on the left take, and even on the right, of course, the neoliberal right. If you would say to them, they would say exactly in a way what you say. They say, well, we may get it to a world where the people have to make choices among ethnic cuisines. They may get to a world in which, uh, <laughs> I don't know how it could be tragic to choose between Indian and Chinese, but anyway, we may have a world in which people have unhappy love affairs. They do have unhappy love mm. affairs. And we may, may have a world in which people suddenly die of new diseases and so on. So that might be, that might be, uh, but we won't have a world in which the uh, structures of power are such that they impose these choices, uh, tragic choices on large number, so, numbers so of let, people. Let's, so I suppose there's two, there's two, having read your corpus, read this book, yeah. there's probably two points of disagreement or yeah. an interesting, interesting conflict and tension. So the first is you've got um, a quite justified and understandable contempt, critique of utopianism. I would say the major problem for the West in the 21st century was the lack of utopianism. Is anti-utopianism. Yeah, yeah. Because what it does, and you sort of talk about this a little bit in the book, but you don't say expl explicitly, you know, is that, well, okay, living standards have been flat for a long time, productivity flat 15 years, yet we really can't get a handle on any one of about a dozen social challenges that working and middle-class people really care about. But you know what? You're not a peasant living in 15th century France, so stop complaining. So I, I think, so I think there is a real, there's a toolkit for intellectuals and politicians, which I think was very well suited to the problems of the 20th century. But I think this aversion, skepticism, hostility to utopianism is increasingly constraining the ability of the West to solve its basic problems. No, I would think it's slightly different uh, than that. I mean, the the difference is that liberal capitalists don't understand the respects in which they view as a utopian. They don't understand the respects in which uh, um, it can't be made global or universal. The more it extends itself, the more fragile it becomes. Uh, and, and they think of it as permanent when there can be a boom, of course, a boom period. There have been many boom periods in history. That can last for a while. But they have the seeds in them of their own destruction. So they, when they say, I mean, this is, the, if you like, the problem with what's come to be called capitalist realism, which is it assumes the situation, it assumes the system can be in, in, in indefinitely malleable and indefinitely managed. So this is a form of the end of history. Capitalist realism is a form of the end of history. So you could say, well, what about the great the Wall Street crash? Well, that will never be allowed to happen again. What about the rise of fascism in the, in the 30s? Well, that's not going to happen. It is happening, actually, under various forms now. But uh, So, by the way, we can, we can be sure it's possible if it's actually happening. Mm. <laughs> One little piece of logic you can get uh, out of philosophy is if something's actually happening, that's definitely possible. But they say, no, we can, we, can, we can manage the system. We can keep it going. We can. Now, that might not always be a bad position to take if the alternatives are very much worse. So if, you were, if you're saying to me, if supposing I was in Weimar, Germany, and um, before I was born, and there was a program, someone was, came up with a program that would somehow have stabilized Weimar, Germany, 
difficult given what was happening in the mm. world and so on, and given the conflicts in Central Europe and other, impossible probably actually, but would I have supported? Yes, I would have supported. Uh, it could be, it could even be thought of as a conservative program or a conservative story, but I would have because if I'd had any insight at that time, which some people I think did actually think how bad it could be, they didn't quite anticipate the full horrors of Nazism, but they thought it could be pretty bad, including people on the left. If you could say, well, if this, if this is the, if it, would I support a, so to speak, a, um, a conservative strategy, then yes, definitely. But the argument then would be, well, no, that's too, it, it's, it's too, I mean, if I, maybe I'm putting these arguments into your mouth, but you could say, but that assumes there's no alternative at all, or that all the alternatives are disastrous, there could be better alternatives. That's what, that's what the Well, I think, so for instance, you said that you support public ownership of, let's say something really uncontroversial, rail, because the franchises yeah. end, it's very easy to water is even less controversial. Yeah, it's very, these are all quite moderately easy to execute, right? And I think for some people that would be viewed as utopian. And I think what this feeds into is the anti-utopianism as the default. It might. I don't think you see. They I, don't. They don't recognise the primacy of politics. So, for instance, yeah, well, they would say, "Well, the shareholders are not. No, they won't have that." And the branks and this, and that's what they didn't get about Brexit is the primacy of politics. If you have a social majority wanting something very passionately in a system where people, in order to be re-elected, have to broadly do what people tell them to do, then that's broadly... There's a difference here, That's though. the direction in terms of the outcome. There's a difference. Something can be utopian in the sense that it in includes, it involves a system that has never existed or has never been, never no, worked. We, we, no, but we live in a world where people think that public ownership of rail is utopian. That's what these people think. We're not in a world where it's like Saint-Simon and Fourier, the sea stand to lemonade. They think public ownership of energy is utopian. That. Now, yes, but um, it may be impossible without being utopian. Again, we know it's not utopian in the sense of being impossible because it did exist. Yeah. It's a repetition where I said, if something did exist, it's not impossible. Mm. <laughs> Again, so but their argument against it is by deploying anti-utopianism. Well, if we do that, then we don't know where all any any politics which is infused. the really hard truth is that that what I would prefer in um, in regard to public utilities is desirable and certainly possible because it existed before, but may well not be possible for any British government of any complexion as long as it remains as dependent on capital markets as it is. And that's probably right, yeah. yeah. That's the hard truth. Yeah. In other words, it is desirable, it is possible, it did occur before, it could in principle occur again, so it's not utopian in that sense, it's not utopian, but it's also impossible for the foreseeable future. As long as we're as exposed, as long as I've argued, perhaps, it was not entirely frivolous when I compared Britain in the piece I did in my column for the, to Argentina, one of the richest countries in the world, top 10 rich countries 100 years ago, um, went from being in that position in the 30s and then later to becoming a, a basket case. Um, such that it's actually very, such that now the various um, products of the Argentine political culture include uh, um, radical anti anarcho capitalists by their own description who want to burn down the the uh, central bank that want to abolish the national currency and replace it by a mixture of dollars and crypto. Uh, um, they want um, free markets in sex and also human organs, but they're strongly anti-abortion. I haven't quite worked out how that, how that works, but anyway, uh, um, uh, that's what they, some of the Armillet, uh, the uh, um, front runner for the, for the presidency, who could, by the way, I, mean, I think there's a non-trivial chance that he could be elected. Could become. What would he do then? That'd be the interesting thing. 
But probably, I mean, I have been to Argentina. It was a long time ago, so but so I don't know what it's like now. But the, the, the hard truth is that certain social and political systems get themselves into a historical cul-de-sac from which it's very difficult to get out because their own politicians are thoroughly corrupt, thoroughly irresponsible, and the global capital markets won't will veto anything that could be done anyway, probably. So the, the really bad uh, pr prospect for Britain, um, which I think is not at all unrealistic, I don't say it's inevitable, but it's not at all unrealistic, is that we're actually either already or we're entering that, entering that uh, position. And this takes us on to Brexit because, of course, what people say, well, we wouldn't be as isolated if we're in the magnificent colossus of Europe. That eternal thing, by the way, I mean, one of the odd things about the EU is that it's almost like a line from Eliot, T.S. Eliot. He, he talks about the still point of a turning world in one of his mystical poems. That's what the EU is for, for the Remainer mind. I don't mean all of those people who voted Remain. Lots of my friends voted Remain. By the way, the best argument against Brexit I've heard was one put to me by a friend who said, why are you voting Remain, he said, because the British political class simply isn't up to making Brexit. They're just hopeless. It's a very good, very good argument. Very powerful argument. Mm. That's the best, I think, the best argument. Um, and it's proved to be true. They weren't up to it. And they didn't want to. The political class didn't want to do it. It was, it was handed to them. And they didn't do it. They thought that they, they, put up, they tried to overturn it for several years. Then they accepted it. But even now they didn't accept it. Basically, they still want to reverse it, as has been seen recently in Starmer's uh, uh, um, revelation of the fact that he does have one belief, one feature. He has the belief in Europe, in the EU, the still point in the eternal way. If we're in there, nothing bad can happen to us. Nothing bad can happen to Europe. Well, one thing's already bad that happens is, is, is uh, Ukraine. That's kind of pretty bad. Um, but also, um, uh, many European countries now for various reasons, partly connected with immigration, partly connected with climate policy and other factors, have seen um, a continuing trend, not just a blip of the emergence of far-right parties. So we're not that way far off a situation in which the uh, EU will be predominantly a far-right bloc. Now, you would think, wouldn't you, if the attitude of British Remainers to Europe was empirical, and not mystical, you would think that they would take note of this and say, well, do we really want to be part of a, uh, we rejoin or in some looser relationship, but still much closer than we are now, to a block in which many governments are dependent on far-right support, in which we'll probably include 20% of the vote in Germany is far-right. Um, um, over 40% of, um, I think, if I remember my figures right, of the French... Uh, electorate in the last presidential election vote for, for Le Pen. Do we want to be a part of, the, uh, of that? No, they don't say that. They never discuss the matter because, because as we, you and I, I think, but they're not really interested in Europe. Brexit for them was a, a fetid uh, intratory dispute uh, where they wanted to, they're not in, they know nothing about Europe and they don't care about Europe, but it does embody a kind of semi-mystical ideal for them in which we can escape the problems which are singular to Britain by merging with this other entity, which has all the virtues that we lack. And it forms, and this is the crucial thing about their resistance to empirical thinking, which is that this is part of a worldview of those, which is that all of the 
experiences since 2016 are departures from the normal course of history. What they cannot and will never understand is that what they and other liberals call populism um, is the political blowback, is political blowback against the social disruption that their policies have produced. They can't understand the connection between what they've done and populism. Populism comes from nowhere or from very evil people. What they come up with in the end is a theory of evil. Well, there are these evil demagogues who've been lying around for a long time, and they suddenly emerge, and they deceive the gullible masses, the uneducated, the uneducated. That's what, that's what it is. It's a theory of evil. It's odd from those who say there isn't such a thing as evil, there's only error, the, 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 uh, human beings are indefinitely improvable, they're getting better, but they've come up with a theory. That ex explains it. But whatever the explanation they might come up with, um, 2016 onwards, or even before that, is um, an anomaly in the normal uh, course of human history. The normal course of human history would have seen uh, Hillary Clinton re-elected. Why didn't that happen? Um, the Russians? It's usually something exogenous to the society, or some, some mistake that could easily have been altered but wasn't. Uh, or remember at the time they said, well, she hasn't got, Trump hasn't got a majority. They never said that about previously. I mean, he had a majority. It's an entire worldview which is on the line for them. And it's on the line for them partly, of course, because they are the vanguard of the normal course of history. I mean, the normal course of history was that it would be, if it, if, uh, which was dislocated or derailed from 2016 onwards. And it, uh, it would be that um, a transnational, potentially global, but at least European state, which wasn't an empire, but wasn't a nation state either. It's not an empire, but it isn't a nation. It's some new, completely new. And it wants to go all the way to Georgia, but it's definitely not an empire. Yeah, but also it hasn't got most of the, it's where I disagree with some of the Brexit. They say it's, you know, it's an incipient super state. It isn't an incipient super state. It hasn't got fiscal union. It hasn't got um, um, armed forces. At the moment, um, some people uh, on the right of European politics are asking that a naval blockade be put around um, um, Lampedusa. It hasn't got a navy. Small problem. Uh, so uh, it isn't a state. It's not going to become a state, in my view. There is an argument, I mean, some kind of ultra-sophisticated ex-Brexiteers now say, well, by leaving it, we've made them um, more likely. Some Remainers say this to people. We've made it more likely for uh, Europe to become a dangerous superstition. Absolute nonsense. There are too many conflicts within Europe and too many problems that, you, that Europe can't, can't resolve. There are conflicts between um, uh, Poland and Hungary on the one hand, and even between them, but on the one hand, and the uh, Germany and France on the other. Then there's the uh, the Baltic states, then there's uh, uh, Scandinavia, Sweden. These are all have different interests and different um, trajectories. But also, uh, in many of the states, as I mentioned earlier, um, the far right which is emerging is not a pan-European far right. These are not the fascists and Nazis of the 30s who wanted to abolish nations. Actually, some of them did. Some of them were pan-European. They were fed up with these small ones. Get rid of them, kill them all, enslave them. They're not. They're nationalists. So actually, the uh, the strong, the the emerging far right groups are primarily. They may or may not be proposing to leave the the EU, which 
uh, Le Pen doesn't anymore. And um, uh, because actually the, the obstacles to leaving, if you're in the euro, are huge. Mm. We were able to leave when we did leave just because we weren't in the euro. But if you're in, it's a revolutionary act. And a revolution of that, of that kind, which would probably involve in Italy and in France, for example, a, a devaluation of savings of those who had them and, you know, 20, 30, 40%. You're not going to get bourgeois support for that. You know, I mean, the only people who will want it will be impoverished young people. Another feature, by the way, of this is that these right-wing movements in Europe are very often youth movements. Yeah. Very much lost on English speakers, oh, right? They don't it's so different. Yeah, they, think, they, they think that young people are all liberals and uh, not in Europe and not in America now. I mean, the, the, the conversion rate into far-right positions is high, very high among young people. Mm. Amongst like the one, the cohort below Gen Z is particularly concerning, actually not concerning. But there's, and, and what's interesting is if you look at, I think people now entering college, 18 to 21 year olds, there is this extraordinary divergence in um, political sympathies by gender in the US, which is just obviously that's always existed to some extent. Yes, that's a difference. But now it's just, it's blown up in the last five years. It's partly for a reason which I write about in the book, which is back in the um, early 90s, when I first um, got the idea that um, America might come a cropper because of its internal divisions. When you say a cropper, what do you mean, a civil war? Um, not civil war, no. Uh, could be civil warfare, which is chronic sort of low-level violence and yeah. disruption of institutions, but was partly because of um, um, abortion. America's different, not different from everywhere. There's also been conflicts in Poland and some European countries. But America is, because of its religious composition and others, and that spills over into a gender politics. And it's one of the reasons that um, um, DeSantis, I think, never really had a chance. Because unlike Trump, who could flirt with the pro-life wife, who doesn't believe any of it, and everybody knows he doesn't believe any of it, uh, DeSantis really did. So he really would have pushed, I think, for, and I think that, was a, that was a, would have killed uh, Republican support among many Republican women killed at stone dead. They don't want to lose this freedom. Why should they? They may not find the present situation satisfactory in many ways. And because one of the, one of the reasons I argued this back in the 1890s is that turning, all, um, turning values into rights works when the values are broadly and generally accepted in society and fairly that's what, so you can have a right against torture. You can have a right, um, various rights of free speech and, and so on, though defining them is not always easy. But if a position is turned, if, 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 if a value position is turned into a right, which is deeply controversial in the society, which is deeply disputed and conflicted, as abortion always has been in, 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 in America, um, then in the long run, and it may take, as it did take 30 years for this to happen, back then, what I, what I wrote was the inevitable result is that the constitutional, the supreme constitutional authority will become an object of political capture. If it's, if it, if it constitutionalizes rights, to activities that a third or a quarter of the population or, uh, regard as basically wrong um, in the long run, which is taking a generation, um, there will be a, a pushback by the conservatives. And that was achieved under, 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 under Trump. That was the point these conservative judges who had various complex constitutional arguments why abortion should never have been um, turned into a right. But all of those are irrelevant to me. They're just local American fetishes about constitutionalism. But the real reason is that rights cannot insulate from politics, cultural and other conflicts, which are deep-seated 
If you try to do that, you eventually threaten the regime. But this is very relevant to UK context because yes. we, of course, now have a Supreme Court. Yes, we do. Which is very alien to the... the, well, the that was, it's an American imposition. Yeah, and I, that is, was Blair. Yeah, well, I, talk, I love talking to conservatives about this because I say, look, well, you know, if we, if we, had, if we had Lord Derriere, then you know, the courts wouldn't be in this mess, sentencing wouldn't Absolutely. be like... The police, this would not Absolutely. be anything yes. like this. And I think there's probably something to that. But what's interesting with Blair is when he introduces the Supreme Court, I don't think he realises the gravity of what he's no, doing. No, he didn't. He didn't. He and def- like, def- you know, def- you're changing the complexion of the democracy quite, quite fundamentally. Radically. Well, I agree with that 100%, uh, Aaron, because what it's done is um, it's produced a kind of... Um, I mean, the American system has produced its pathologies, which is that everything is litigated. Uh, it's part and if you capture this one body, you control the... You know, like... Control everything. Yeah. But everything is litigated. and. Um, Politics becomes, law becomes a surrogate for politics. But yeah. when law becomes a surrogate for politics, law becomes politicized. And eventually, that politics becomes Schmidtian politics, the politics of enemies, which has happened now in America. That's one endpoint of that. Now, we are in a, a kind of halfway house here, which is that um, uh, uh, lawfare was promoted by the, uh, the Remainers, but it now covers vast swathes of government activity to the point at which it's even questionable whether we have a government, actually, in the, in, in, because you could say, well, we should do this. You say, well, yes, but you'll have to. I mean, this would be a good thing to do. There might even be agreement, but it'll be litigated. Stop for years. We should build more houses. I'm not saying whether we should or we shouldn't, but some people, build more houses. Well, you can't do that because it'll be endlessly litigated through the courts by the NIMBYs. Uh, which does. And in that circumstance, what it produces in Britain is not the, yet, or not so much the Schmidtian politics of enmity, but paralysis, in which nothing can actually be done on a wide range of, is, uh, of issues, unless you're ready to get out of the EH, uh, the European Convention of Human Rights, which a few conservatives and others are. Anything that's done about immigration will be litigated. Whether, whether you agree with it or not, mm. anything. Uh, and many other issues, as I mean, issues of town planning and of uh, building, and so it applies, it applies to them all. So what we got, what we've got in Britain is a kind of paralyzing version of, um, of lawfare. And it does, I think, emerge primarily, or at least the, the starting point of it was, was Blair's creation. I mean, the, the very name is, tells you what he was doing. He was trying to sort of superimpose on a, on a fundamentally different system of parliamentary sovereignty. Let me go, history of ideas. I used to be a historian of ideas, and I spent 20 years working and reading about John Stuart Mill. When John Stuart Mill writes about liberty, his background idea is not a court. There wasn't a Supreme Court. There was parliamentary sovereignty, mm. which was pretty well absolute. By the way, it was absolute up to and including Thatcher. She could do whatever she wanted. Uh, uh, I was. I mean, feasibly, it's still here, right? They could scrap the Supreme Court if, if there was an act of parliament to get rid of oh, the Supreme could, Court. Legally, it could all still be scrapped, but there's not the political will there, and there won't be. Well, I think I'm sort of surprised the Tories never talk about that. Oh, they they have been talking about the European Convention. But I mean, the Supreme Court bit, and this because that's that's lower hanging fruit, right? It would it would be semi revolutionary. I mean, in a sense, again, uh, look what's happening in Israel. Mm. similar in some respects to us in that there isn't a fixed constitution, there isn't a written constitution. 
the attempt by Netanyahu to get to limit, even just limit, not abolish the Supreme Court, produced profound internal divisions. I also followed, and I even went there for on some occasions. I found I followed the uh, evolution of um, political development in New Zealand. Now, New Zealand was interesting because its its original constitution was an extreme version of the British constitution, which is that. Um, there were no set rights. There was no Supreme Court. The, when I went in um, the early 90s, late 80s, there was no second chamber. It was a billiard hall, at least when I visited, uh, visited them. And I think, it was, I think the second chamber was abolished there in the 1950s. So there was, there was a, one parliament which could do anything. And that was why, by the way, that was the reason, the, fund, the basic fundamental constitutional political reason, why neoliberalism there was more radical than anywhere else. It's the only country of which I'm aware in which farming was marketized, radically marketized. So they usually powerful. You can do all sorts of things about farm, but to actually just defund them completely, which they did, almost unthinkable. And it all happened rather quickly. There were local reasons for that, which is that the their their Labour Party was taken over by someone with a strong neoliberal views, but a somewhat left-wing foreign policy. And that led the left to think that none of this was going to happen, whereas it's obvious to me that it was going to happen. Mm. But it was also obvious to me that it would melt down for various reasons because they started talking about changing the electoral system, which they did, and then uh, the party con constellation of parties all changed. Um, uh, so most of what had been done was kept, but some of the more extreme edges of uh, their Thatcherism were sort of made... Uh, a bit more um, um, bearable. Um, but uh, um, you're absolutely right about this. I think Blair didn't grasp what a fundamental change it was, or maybe he did, but he thought it would be coherent. He didn't understand that underneath there'd still be parliament, there'd still be local authorities, and they would be political bodies. And then you superimpose this structure of law going up to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court still can't overrule parliament. If parliament comes up with a decision which uh, so what it wants, but the political will is absent. In practice, what that means is my political hope, insofar as I still have any, <laughs> is for a hung parliament, which may not happen either. There may not be a hung parliament because of what's happened in Scotland. The meltdown of the SNP may give uh, Labour a working majority, in which case there will not be proportional representation. I've now come to the view, which I oppose for many, many, many years, uh, but I pride myself on being something of an empiricist, so I've come to this view from observations and evidence that electoral reform is a precondition of any kind of emergence of better political ideas and better political coalitions in, in, in Britain. And the reason I came to that is that the principal argument against proportional representation that I hear is that it doesn't produce strong government, but we've had governments with massive majorities that have been weak, very weak, have been locked in internal 80 majority, produced chaos uh, uh, and um, anarchy and various kinds of uh, internal party conflict and division and achieved nothing, basically. Uh, uh, so having that experience... And seeing all the parties converging on the non-existent center, that strange confluence of watered-down policies, all of which are opposed by the British majority. And the only way that can be broken up is by changing the uh, electoral system. And I think that is possible. There may yet be a hung parliament. And if there isn't a hung parliament this time, there may be after that. Mm. Because one thing I would confident, confidently make a prediction 
uh, many other things. It's not clear who's going to win the American election. It's not clear whether Biden will be around. It's not clear what's going to happen. But in Britain, I'm pretty confident Labour will be overwhelmed quite quickly if it becomes a government. Um, because it has nothing, essentially. It, uh, its only policies are a green agenda, which is um, not affordable and which imposes disproportionate costs on working people. So we'll be rejected by the trade unions and already is being to some extent. And a pro-European policy, which is anachronistic and nostalgist and won't occur probably, something like that probably won't occur um, because uh, uh, it would be difficult to legitimate democratically in Britain any really transformative uh, re-engagement with Europe. So it's a cul-de-sac that they're moving into. That will break down and then something else will happen. It's interesting about the um, the parliamentary sovereignty bit because Ramsay MacDonald said this in the early 20th century, which is we don't need to do what the Bolsheviks have done in Russia. We have a we have yeah. a sovereign parliament which gives the person with the largest you know number yeah. of seats and then an extraordinary amount of power. I want to finish. But with that's this. one of, one of my. I'm not a socialist. It's one of my objections to the EU. It's constructed to make socialism impossible. Yeah, well, it's moderate social democracy. No, frankly, I mean, it's yeah. constructed to make social democracy impossible. Yeah. I mean, if it, had, if it had achieved all its goals, it would have done that. It would have been a vast neoliberal market of capital and labor. That's, that's what it explicitly is. So what I find puzzling among uh, on the left, moderate or radical left, is that they hold out these um, hopes and illusions about the EU. It's very explicit what the EU wants. They want a, a neoliberal continent. Last question. Mm. Um, you talk about the rise of hyper-liberal ideology mm. and, and the woke religion of surplus elites. Mm. So I'm going to read this quote here. Hyper-liberal ideology plays a number of roles. It operates as a rationale for a failing variety of capitalism and a vehicle through which surplus elites struggle to secure a position of power in society. Insofar as it expresses a coherent system of ideas, it is the anti-Western creed of an antinomian intelligentsia that is ineffably Western. <laughs> so this it's is fascinating. fascinating. There's a lot of... Lot of Packed into that yeah, thing. that's fascinating. So th this idea that hyper, hyper um, liberalism, liberalism woke movement, etc., is drawing upon the intellectual reservoirs of Western liberalism in order to attack Western liberalism. Yeah. And you see really strong parallels between that and sort of late czarist Russia. I do see some parallels. But the interesting point I would make now, um, I mean, there wouldn't have been the Russian Revolution if there hadn't been the First World War. Of course, there could be a bigger war than we've had so far. It could be that the United States would get into a war. I think it's quite unlikely, actually, but with China. And it's very unclear who would prevail or who would lose the most from that war. So there can be more than one comparison. But the key thing about the hyper-liberals is I think the key contradiction or paradox in them is that on the one hand, they're tremendously anti-West, uh, claim to be anti-colonial. They think Western societies are incurably rotten. Western civilization was a blot on the planet and on human history. And on the other hand, their um, ideological goals of deconstructing the self of radical autonomy are all hyperbolic versions of Western ideals. And not only that, they think that all the countries in the world will have to go through this process. They think that uh, the Taliban must become liberal. Now, there be anything wrong with the Taliban, in my view at least. But are there, is this, is, is, do they have to, is there only one alternative, deconstructionist, radical hyperliberalism? They're not going to become like that. Most of the world isn't like that. Indeed, the hyperliberalism of America is strongest in the Anglosphere. Beyond that, it's weak. In uh, Eastern post-communist Europe, it's very weak. In India, it's weak. In, in, in China, it's very weak. It's regarded in most of the world with a mixture of um, uh, gleeful schadenoid and pity and contempt. Nobody admires it. 
And yet, it's very strong in the Anglosphere and many parts of the world. So America's in this strange paradoxical position now, and hyperliberals are that. They, um, America has no soft power in the world. I mean, there's no country in the world and no, uh, uh, where there are strong majorities which see America as an ideal to be adopted. There are still people that emigrate to America from Latin America, Haiti, China to some extent, India. Uh, but it has no soft power. And yet this parochial, peculiar American ideology, which universalizes certain American dilemmas and problems, certain features of racism and colonialism, some of which are universal, but the ones that are they, what, what they're universal is their own peculiar parochial history, has spread in many other parts of the world. So um, it's, it's a projection of, a hyperbolic projection of certain Western ideals and forms of thinking, Christianity to some extent, which is a cult of the victim, um, uh, the Enlightenment, which is in part a, a, a cult of human autonomy, are radicalized to, to an extreme point. And then the idea is the whole world isn't going to become like that. Five or ten years from now, certainly 20 years from now, the situation in Britain and Europe and in, in America will, will be uh, unrecognizably different because this is not, I don't know what it'll be, it'll be quite different from now, but it won't be one in which this is stable, hyper-liberal elite running everything. So there are huge movements of um, discontent, some of them very unpleasant movements, some of them horrifying movements in Europe and elsewhere, but there are vast movements. For example, in the song, Rich Men North of Richmond in America, you've heard about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How many views did it get? Now, the left is furious about that, and the liberals are furious about this. I'm writing about this shortly. I've written about it in, in the New States, but they're furious about it because they say, well, it's not really a critique of capitalism. It's, it, it, it's racism. Richmond was the capital of the Confederate uh, regime and so on in the Civil War. It's all terrible stuff. But why has it got so many listeners? Mm. One of the reasons is surely that... Um, the uh, uh, marginalization and the, and, the, and the suffering and the loss of a productive role of millions and millions of Americans, along with the stagnant incomes of millions and millions more, in other words, the rise of extreme inequality and so on, is being uh, either ignored or um, very inadequately treated by the mainstream parties. That's the reason. So there's no, there's no way that, there's no way out of this uh, situation. Put it, put it into a very simple thing. Whoever wins the next presidential election in America will not be accepted as legitimate by at least a third of the population. So they've entered what Marxists used to call a legitimation crisis. They're already in it, and it will become acute after the next election. Whoever wins, because whoever wins is not going to win by a sweeping majority. Worse than that, there'll be a large block, 20, 30, 40% maybe, who regard it as not just a Trumpist. What if Trump wins? Hebrew regarded as Ill Ill illegitimate by liberals and Democrats. It's entered a, an irreversible period of, of legitimation crisis, which doesn't mean the state's going to collapse. It doesn't mean there's going to be anarchy. It doesn't mean there's going to be civil war like in the 1860s, but it does mean that it'll be um, a dysfunctional state which is semi-failed and probably will withdraw if there isn't an accidental big war before then, probably will withdraw from some of its major commitments uh, abroad to begin with Ukraine, and possibly even its support for Taiwan. In other words, turn into a more, there might be a goal of an autarkic kind of economy, which America could achieve, if anyone can, it's probably the United, the United States, um, mixed with a willingness to trade on negotiating with anybody, including China. 
So it could be that this whole anti-Chinese, I mean, it's more deeply rooted than the support for um, Ukraine, but it could be that, that this whole anti-Chinese, um, and by the way, I'm strongly critical of many aspects of the Chinese regime, and I also regard it as a threat. Espionage and other things are absolutely real. They're not made up by conspiracy theorists. They're, they're real, real threats. But America's not ready for war. It's not prepared for war. I'm not convinced it will fight a war. And that it's it, the economic interests of many sectors of American society wouldn't benefit from because a lot of companies, I mean, America, it's unlike the Cold War, fundamental point. The, the relationship between America and China is completely unlike the, the Cold War because they're codependent economically, which the Soviet Union and the West was not. In the course, fundamentally different situation. So something different will happen out there. War could happen by accident, but if it doesn't happen by accident, I think the most likely outcome is that America will f fall in on itself, introvert, become even more introverted than it is really actually now. And that would fundamentally change the whole world geopolitical situation, including in Europe, because America's never been stronger in Europe than it is, is now. If the rug is pulled on that, what happens in Europe? Mm. Not just in Ukraine, but in other parts of it. What happens, what happens to the EU, uh, for example? So I think we are approaching a, um, uh, uh, an historical juncture in which certain options, which have been options, will cease to be options. And other options will be sort of embedded for some time. And that's not a deterministic or a fatalistic view, but it's one which accepts the irreversibility of historical changes. Even neo-feudalism isn't feudalism. Uh, uh, and also accepts that um, the situation that we're in now, politically speaking, is in some respects a tragic one. John Gray, thanks so much for joining no, us. Thank you for your, for your questions. And thank you for the very interesting conversation in which you've put counter-arguments from which I've learned. I'm very glad to hear it. My thank pleasure. You. Thank you. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.